Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. This month, Hannah's venturing not too far from home as she tours our own solar system planets. Andrew will outline how we figure out what exoplanets are made of. And I will go through all the recent exciting news of exoplanet science from the last month. Before we get started, though, let's meet the three exocasters. So we have Hannah Wakeford, who studies clouds and atmospheres of exoplanets from NASA Goddard in DC. We have Andrew Rushby, who analyzes the planetary habitability and studies the early climate of the Earth at NASA Ames in California. And we have Hugh Osborne, who hunts for transiting exoplanets from the University of Warwick in the UK. So uh, we're going to start off this exocast with Hannah, who's going to take us on a whirlwind tour of the planets nearest to us, those of our own familiar solar system. So what we've been learning so far about exoplanets is that they are incredibly diverse. Even if from some of their parameters they appear to be similar, they're actually all seeming to be quite different from each other. Now, I've always said that why are we surprised by this? Why are we surprised by anything that we're finding? Our own solar system, every single planet is completely different. So I wanted to take us on a little bit of a tour of the different planets that we actually have in our own back garden uh, and see what kinds of things we should be expecting to find out there. So let's kick it off by looking at Mercury, the closest planet to the Sun, our star. And it's also the smallest of what are deemed the planets in our solar system. Now, what I love about Mercury is that it orbits its Sun in just 87 days. But its rotation period is very, very different. This means that when you are actually on Mercury, there's a chance that you can see something called a double sunrise. So this happens because there's this unique phenomenon where the speed of the planet as it orbits the sun overtakes the rotation speed. So this causes the sun to set, then rise again, when the planet passes the point of its closest approach to the sun. So you get this sunset, sunrise, sunset again, all in one rotation of your planet. So essentially one day of your planet, which is uh, unique to Mercury in our own solar system. It's very, very strange. Now, Mercury doesn't have an atmosphere. Um, It has these very small patches where you see gas in what you would say would be an atmosphere close to the planet. Um, But that's because of the solar radiation bombarding the rock and causing uh, gas coming off of the rock or um, dissociation from those solid species. So it doesn't actually have an atmosphere and it is just this, this wrinkled little rocky world that's incredibly dense closest to our sun. Then next out is what I think is an amazing planet. This is our twin. This is our evil twin, Venus. Now, Venus will quite happily crush you down and melt you uh, if you wanted to land on it. And the the Russian landers that have been sent there have found that out uh, quite quickly. Now, although it's not the closest to the sun, Venus is the hottest planet in our solar system. And this is because its atmosphere is incredibly thick 
and is mostly composed of carbon dioxide. So it's around 95% carbon dioxide. And this causes something called the greenhouse effect, where the radiation is trapped in the planet's atmosphere. So it's heated up by this. And also, its atmospheres are so thick that on the surface, the pressure is 92 times that of what we're experiencing here on the surface of the Earth. So that's the equivalent of going down nearly a kilometer underwater. So that's, that's three times deeper than any human scuba diver has gone without any kind of shell around them. So that's an amazing pressure that you get on the surface of Venus. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that's amazing. Now the atmosphere is composed of, like I said, mostly carbon dioxide, but the clouds and the rain that you would get on this Venus are gonna be sulfuric acid. So if you could survive the pressure, if you could survive the temperature, if you could survive some of the, what we think might be still recent lava flows on the surface, the rain itself uh, is made out of a very strong acid, which will probably melt you uh, and quite, quite corrosively destroy you anyway. So it's not a very nice place to go, but it is fascinating because I do think uh, that because of the way the atmospheres form, we are going to be finding many, many exo-venuses in the next decade. Now, next is, of course, Earth, which I would deem the strangest planet in our solar system. Uh, it is entirely unique unto itself with varying climates, varying people and species across the surface. So I don't know that I need to say much more about the most studied planet that we actually have uh, in our solar system. After that comes the, the second most studied planet in our solar system, Mars. Now, Mars uh, is bright red due to the um, iron that it has uh, in its on its surface. So this iron oxide is essentially just rust. It's a rusty planet. Um, and Mars is, like I said, the most explored of the other planets other than the Earth. And it's had over 30 probes and satellites that have been sent towards this red planet since the 60s. Most of the missions didn't make it. Um, the Russians still have never been able to land anything on Mars. Uh, they've been able to land things on Venus, which is way harsher environment, but they never quite made it to Mars. Um, but currently there are two active rovers on the ground, uh, Curiosity and Opportunity. And Curiosity has taught us so much uh, since its landing, since its crazy uh, sky crane maneuver to land a, a essentially a jeep a small jeep sized rover on the surface we learned that we can sky crane things in that's the first thing it taught us um, but we've also learned that mars likely had flowing water on its surface um, and that's really told us a lot about the environment how it's evolved over time uh, and what that means for what you need to sustain a, a essentially what we would define as a habitable world. It doesn't have a very thick atmosphere and that likely uh, helped in the loss of the water. And, th and that's something that's really, really important when we're looking at exoplanets. How can we learn from the planets in our solar system about what it what is required for something to be habitable. So looking at Venus, we know something can't live there because it's absolutely ghastly environment. 
or something like Mars where the atmosphere is a little bit too thin, there's no magnetic field protecting it, um, how, how that lost its potential habitability can really teach us about what we're looking at with these exoplanets compared to when we're looking at the Earth. So Mars has taught us loads of different things. Uh, and actually, the rover itself has, has drilling capabilities. And from some of the things that it's been drilling, it's, it's been finding uh, what we would call organic um, markers. So things that you could uh, suggest that, that biological material could, could have formed or could have been present in the past. But I, I'm sure Andrew will be able to tell us a lot more about that. Um, as we as we move out to what I like, these these are the planets I like, the gas giants. Uh, these are mostly composed of hydrogen and helium. They are big, puffy balls of gas. We don't even know if they have cores or not. And Jupiter is our largest planet in our solar system. It's about eleven times the radius of the Earth. So that's in itself tells you how big this planet is. Um, it's got an atmosphere which stretches over 5,000 kilometers in altitude. Now, to get to space from the Earth, you only have to go 100 kilometers up. So that, again, is just giving you a sense of scale of this world. Now, there is this thing uh, on, on Jupiter called the Great Red Spot. If you've looked at it through a telescope and you've got the, the perfect uh, angle for Jupiter, you can see this spot even from the ground. Um, but it's been studied for as long as we could view Jupiter. So as long as we've had telescopes to look at Jupiter, this great red spot has been there. That is a hurricane over six times the size of the Earth at its biggest, which has been raging for 300 years, which is absolutely amazing. And there's been some recent uh, paper that has come out about this great red spot, not only is it actually shrinking at the moment, it appears like it's getting smaller, but also there's a, been a study which has found that the temperature in the atmosphere above this great red spot is actually hotter than we would expect. So this, this hurricane is actually causing something in the atmosphere to heat it up above that. So that's really interesting. There's so much we don't know. And uh, Juno uh, is a, a NASA mission which recently got into uh, orbit around Jupiter on July 4th. And that's gonna actually help us understand a lot about Jupiter and, and hopefully about other exoplanets in that we don't know that Jupiter has a core or not. So by doing uh, different um, gravitational tests and do, looking below the water clouds, um, we'll be able to determine if Jupiter has a core. So if when we're modeling exoplanets, we should start out with a core or if it's just gas all the way down and it is just compressed hydrogen at the center. So there's so much we need to learn. What it's also going to be doing is it's going to be showing us below the clouds. So below those those stripy cloud layers of Jupiter and measuring how much water there is underneath those clouds, because we don't actually know how much water is in Jupiter's atmosphere. And that's really important for when we're looking at these giant hot Jupiters, these Jupiter-sized worlds really close to their star, because we're measuring that water in their atmosphere. So to get an idea of what that means for their formation, do they have more water than we would expect or less, we need to know how much water Jupiter has in its atmosphere. So that's another thing that we're going to be learning from Juno, which is going to be really exciting. 
We then move out to an iconic planet in our solar system, Saturn, which has that beautiful ring structure around it. Now, an interesting thing about Saturn is that its mean density, so its average density, is actually less than that of water. So if we had a big bathtub, it would make a very interesting uh, rubber ducky. So it would float on the surface. You can play around with it, see if you can spin it with its rings. But Saturn's ring span, actually, distance is almost as wide as the planet itself. Um, so it extends 6,500 kilometers from the surface to over 120,000 kilometers away. The largest ring was actually discovered in 2009 using the Spitzer Space Telescope. Um, and it's the largest ring that's, that's been found in the solar system. In fact, I didn't mention it, but Jupiter also has a ring system. It's just not as prominent as Saturn's. And in fact, all of the gas giants in our solar system have rings around them. But the system uh, around Saturn is also very, very thick, relatively. It's about 2.5 million kilometers uh, and reaches 50 times further out into space and, than the, the central rings that, that you've got. So this new ring that was found in 2009 is absolutely humongous. Um, so it's very fascinating. We're still learning loads. And Cassini is finishing its mission next year. It will plunge itself into Saturn's atmosphere in, in a very dramatic way, dramatic send-off for a spacecraft is to plunge it into the atmosphere of the planet itself. And what we're going to be able to do for that is look at the area where Cassini enters Saturn's atmosphere and see how it disturbs the gases uh, and the dust around it and see how quickly Saturn is able to fall back into its natural state, so fall back into equilibrium. And that will tell us a lot about the dynamics in the atmosphere itself. So we're using it as a kind of um, a, a comet which might enter the planet's atmosphere like we saw with the Shoemaker Comet in Jupiter's atmosphere. We can study the impact that has on the atmosphere of Saturn. So watch out next year for Cassini's dramatic finish, um, which will hopefully tell us a lot more about the atmosphere itself. And we're moving further out from the solar system. We're getting colder. We're getting much colder. And now we're heading to our ice giants. These are, these are also gas giants and these have rings around them, but they're icy, they're very, very cold. The temperatures go down to, uh, to, go down to below um, that of forming clouds of ammonia. Um, and that's very, very cold. So the first one of these is Uranus. Um, and it's the only planet in our solar system which is named after a Greek god. Um, which is interesting in itself. I'm not sure why, um, but there it is. Um, so its atmosphere is made out of uh, frozen water, so, so ice, uh, ammonia ice and methane ice. So what it means is that it's a very, very different environment for us to study. And it's very, very different from any of the exoplanets that we're studying at the moment because we haven't got any planets which are that cold. All of the planets that have been discovered that we can study the atmospheres of are either done by the transit uh, technique, like we've discussed in previous podcasts, where we can look at these very close planets, or by direct imaging, where they look at these very far out planets. But those far out planets, while they eventually would be very cold, they're very, very young, so they're emitting their own heat. So it's a very different environment from what we can currently study. 
Now, one of the interesting things about Uranus is that it barrel rolls around the solar system. So it's actually tilted at 97.77 degrees. So it's rolling on its side. Um, and this is this causes the poles. So the pole is either facing the sun or it's facing away from the sun. And that can have a really big effect on the seasons that you get on Uranus. And they're very, very extreme seasons. Now, unfortunately, the best image that we got when we had a probe, uh, Voyager 2, which flew past Uranus, it was in one of the most boring phases of its seasonal cycle. Nothing was happening. It was just a bluey green ball that it was able to view, which is kind of annoyingly dull for this very interesting planet. Uh, and what's actually being done since then is Hubble has been used to look at Uranus and actually been able to track some of these storms and seasonal cycles that you get when Uranus kind of rotates essentially from one pole to the other facing the sun. So every 42 years, there's continuous sunlight on one pole and then 42 years of darkness on the other pole. And then that kind of slowly changes over time. And that causes this, this very strong, very strange seasonal cycle where we're actually now just seeing clouds forming um, and evolving in the atmosphere of Uranus. So um, it's uh, much more interesting than we first thought it was. So uh, keep an eye out for Uranus. And then finally, out of the planets that we have, um, we have Neptune, uh, the god of the sea. Uh, and that's because it's a big, rich, blue color. And that's because of the methane in the atmosphere, which causes this, this bright blue color. Now, the only flyby uh, that we've had of Neptune is Voyager 2, um, and that was made in August of 99, so that's a very long time ago. But what it was able to observe was this immense storm system uh, and winds that were whipping around the planet. In fact, Neptune has the fastest winds in our solar system. So around 600 meters per second, or 1,300 miles per hour. So you you would essentially get blown over. You wouldn't be able to <laughs> you wouldn't be able to do anything in that atmosphere. You get whipped around um, at these these kind of supersonic speeds, which is really really interesting. If you were able to uh, stand on Neptune without getting blown over or without sinking into the atmosphere, you'd weigh almost the same as you do on Earth. Um, the surface gravity is if even though there is no surface, it's around 11.5 meters per second. So it's uh, only a little bit stronger than what we have here on Earth. So that's uh, that's quite fascinating, <clears throat> considering it's about four uh, or five times the size of the Earth in, in its diameter, but it is much, much more massive than the Earth. So it's a, a very interesting world. And we are actually finding many, many exoplanets the size of Neptune. So it's really, really fascinating. But what I wanted to say really was that there is such a diversity in our own back garden. There's so many people and there's so many amazing scientists who are studying the planets and the environments we have in our own solar system. It can only help us learn more about the planets that we're looking at orbiting other stars and other solar systems. And hopefully in return, we can pay them back by helping learn about how other solar systems work and maybe learn about our own as well. 
That was fascinating, Hannah. You've really galvanized my interest for the solar system again. Um, the one thing I would ask, though, is, you know, we've been looking at exoplanets for nearly 20 years now, um, and we're coming on multi-planet systems and, you know, discovering the diversity of the architectures of other of other systems. Is the solar sister system in any way typical? And can we can we say that it's atypical, or do we need just more data about it? Thus far, the solar system is is an oddity, but I do not think we can say that it is in fact atypical. I, I do not think that we have enough data, enough uh, understanding of multi-planet systems uh, around different types of stars to say that no, we are strange and unique entirely. Um, I think we can say that our observational bias doesn't allow us to look at a solar system. So we just don't have the capability of, to look at something like our solar system in enough detail to, to, to say anything yet. Um, we're definitely pushing our way towards that. But the, the structure, the dynamics, the environment of other exoplanets, other systems that we are finding, is teaching us a little bit about how a solar system might form. Um, and that's kind of rewriting the books a little bit um, on how we thought our solar system formed. We didn't think you could get a giant Jupiter-sized planet right next to the star. It didn't make sense because our solar system, there's small rocky planets and then there's giant planets. So it's the discoveries of these different, these stranger, these, um, these newer systems is really telling us what our system might have come from, which is very different from what we thought. Yeah, to go back to that point... Um... I mean, most of our knowledge of multi-planet systems and other sort of solar system architecture comes from the Kepler mission, um, which which did an amazing job of, of finding these bizarre systems as well as things that look a bit like the solar system. But actually, if the Kepler mission was looking even edge on, even if uh, it was looking along the plane of our own solar system, it would spot on average zero solar system planets. Yeah. Because Mercury is too small, Venus and Earth are slightly too far away, as well as being on the limit of what Kepler could see. And then everything further out is just uh, on too long a period to, to come around again. So um, we really do have to wait for more missions, I think, before we can start saying whether or not the solar system is, is typical or not. But we're getting there, certainly. Yeah, I think um, the direct imaging uh, community was saying that if we were looking at a very young solar system we might on a good lucky shot get maybe Saturn or, or Jupiter but only if it was very young and very hot still so I mean all of the different methods we're using to detect exoplanets and Hugh you're our expert on the detection side of things but they're, they're just not quite there yet for something like our solar system. Yeah the problem with direct imaging is you're limited to very young systems, as you say, and there's not too many young systems close to yeah. Earth where we can see the same sort of thing. Um, and, well, radio velocities is another thing. So I, we've, we started finding Jupiter-sized um, planets on five-year orbits in the like mid mid noughties actually. So we've been finding Jupiter-like uh, planets for a while with radial velocities. Oh, great. Um, I didn't know that. I don't know why I didn't know that. Yeah, um, but to get to the other planets in the system, it, it's obviously a lot harder. Um, but I think Plato and, uh, in fact, W first and its microlensing mission should start to find the, these systems that look very much like the solar system. Brilliant.
All right, that's great. Thanks, Hannah. And for this month's concept, Andrew's going to talk about the mass radius relationship and what that means for exoplanets. Yeah, thanks, Hugh. Um, so as we've discussed before on Exocast and even in this very episode, there are there's several different techniques that we use for discovering exoplanets. Um, so the most popular method detects how much light a transiting planet obscures as it passes in front of the star relative to our observing int- instruments here, either on the Earth or around it. Um, so... Um, Another method uses the slight wobble of the star caused by an orbiting planet. I'm not going to go into too much detail about those, but I just want to refresh everyone's memory. Um, The reason for that is both of these methods are effective, but they have their limitations in telling us us how we can characterise these planets. Um, So in particular, the transit method, which we've talked about extensively, uh, can only provide an estimate of the radius of the planet uh, as the amount of light that's blocked out uh, is a function of the size of the planet, but not necessarily its mass. Um, We can get the mass, though, which is great, from radial velocity measurements, for example, because the amount of of wobble that we detect in the star is a function of the mass of the planet. Um, So it's great. What we want to do, ideally, is have both of those techniques to, you know, maybe use one to detect the planet and then another to follow up, and that's that's often what is actually done. Um, And we can use then both of those techniques to get the mass and the radius. Now, it's important to have both of those things because once we have those properties, we can maybe determine what the planet's density is, um, and that can tell us what it's made out of. So going back to GCSE physics, I guess, we know that density is just calculated as mass over volume. And um, of course, if we have the mass, we can calculate the volume from the radius, which is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, three quarters pi r squared, I think. Oh, yeah, I think so. Um, so we can have the, we need the mass and the radius. It's four around. thirds pi r cubed. Is that right? If you want the volume... If you want the volume, four thirds pi r cubed. Oh, sorry guys, I messed that up. My GCSE physics. <laughs> okay, I'll try. it's okay. As uh, as editor, I'll make sure that I leave it in. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'll I'll stand by that mistake. You know, I'm not perfect. Uh, anyway, so we want to know that we can have the the mass and the volume. So density is a fantastically useful property to have because it tells us what the planet is made out of on average, anyway, um, and also possibly what its interior structure might be like. Um, And that's important because we need to know about the exoplanet interior um, because this has a strong control on planetary habitability, for example, as well as our understanding of how and um, of how planets can be made and how they are made. Um, So just to just to refresh on on density, uh, we use, for example, water has a density of about one gram per centimeter cubed. And actually, in our solar system, Earth is the most dense planet, um, about 5.5 grams per centimeter cubed. Now, this is because it's made up of you know, silicate rocks and has you know, a relatively large iron core, which is pretty dense. Um, whereas, Han- as Hannah mentioned earlier in the episode, Saturn is the least dense uh, and it has a, uh, a density much less than that of water. So, yeah, it could float in, in water if we could find something, some body of water large enough to support it. Um, and this is because it's primarily made up of hydrogen gas, which is the least dense of all the gases, of course. So we get like nearly an order of magnitude difference in the densities of our solar system planets. Um, when we're looking at exoplanets, it's thought that maybe the least dense exoplanet is one of the Kepler candidates, Kepler 438b, um, which could have a comparable density to Saturn, but it's it's still not been accurately measured yet. Um, whereas some of the most dense exoplanets are um, comparable to the Earth. So it seems that, um, at least in density parameter space, the solar system might actually be relatively typical for a change, or at least based on the, the, the measurements we have at the moment. But that's not 
the end of the story, really, because we can have the average density, but we need a few more equations to help us determine what the interior structure is actually like, because the density isn't constant all the way through the planets. If you look at the Earth, of course, we have a much more dense core than we do our mantle, for example. So we need to use things um, called the equation of state for, for various um, materials, which just describes the relationship between density and temperature and pressure for a material that's in equilibrium. Um, so people have been looking at this for ages, and you know we're getting some good um, relationships between mass and radius. They're relatively well understood, but we can't really use them to study an individual object yet. We need a, a, st a statistically significant sample or the ability to look at a planet directly, or look at the atmosphere in particular. There are some exceptions to this rule. Um, so if we were to find a very dense exoplanet, it's very likely to be iron-dominated because it's the only likely composition that could produce that high density. Um, and of course, if we find a very, very low-density planet, then it's likely to be a gas, a gas planet, of course. Um, however, it's those kind of small mid-density planets, I guess, that, that can have the same average densities overall, but exhibit a whole host of possible bulk compositions, depending on what the atmosphere is like, for example. So we could, uh, for example, have a planet that could be a water world, or it could be a rocky planet with a very thick hydrogen-helium atmosphere. And unless we can actually study that planet individually, then we just really can't determine that just yet. So I guess the important thing is to either big, build up a bigger sample of exoplanets with measured mass and radius and we can start maybe populating a, a diagram, uh, which people are doing and doing very well, um, with potentially distinct populations of planets. Or otherwise we might need to directly image uh, a planet's atmosphere to break that kind of degeneracy between, um, between the scale height of the atmosphere and the interior composition. Um, so I think um, it's, a, it's an active area of, of research, and it's one that will probably prove very useful in the coming years. Oh, that was great. Thanks, Andrew. Really interesting. Um, so how do, do, we, do we know enough about planets to say um, how external factors might affect the density and, and composition of planets? So like the heat from the star, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think with the the impact of the star, that really comes into this the layers thing that Andrew was talking about, where the stellar radiation will impact the only the outermost layer of that density of that planet. So who knows what it would, what impact it would have on <clears throat> the interior. So the bulk density may may be slightly different, and that's that's the issue that we've been talking about here. Um, and Andrew kind of really went through all of those different things that can impact what can change the bulk density. So I think we're really just trying to learn these things as we're going on. And I, I know that's what we're doing with the, the atmospheric characterization. Can we learn about the outer layer? Can that inform us then about what, what the inner layers are like? But observations and data is going to overtake what our understanding of the models are in the next decade, I reckon. Um, so we really need to understand the physics of what's going on in the interiors of these worlds. And I think we need to uh, understand the physics of what's going on in the interior of the solar system planets. We know very little, for example, about Venus, and we're learning more about, about Mars, and hopefully the, um, the 2020 mission, the ESA 2020 mission, might help us with understanding more about the interior of Mars. But it's kind of embarrassing that we know so little about the interior of uh, you know, the planets in our own solar system. We're trying to kind of extrapolate that theory. Um, so I blame the geophysicists. I think that's safe. <laughs> hey, we've only just got to Jupiter to try and work out what 
is in the centre of that. We don't we don't know if it's got a core. Fingers crossed for liquid liquid hydrogen, though. That's going to be awesome. So going back to sort of compositions and density, there's uh, this isn't going to translate well on radio, but there's a really interesting diagram I remember seeing that uh, is basically all of the objects in the universe from small dwarf planets all the way to black holes. And it's uh, mass versus density, effectively. And so for stars, we know quite well there's this main sequence and uh, we know quite well where, where stars fit along that. And for giant planets as well, they, they fit along quite a nice... Uh, smooth sort of line and as as you put more mass onto something like Jupiter it actually decreases in radius and even for sort of terrestrial planets we've found uh, and the models we have it seems like there's not too much variation but between something like uh, the Earth and something the size of Neptune everything goes mental there's this giant region where we have no idea what the uh, density of a planet is going to be given its uh, mass or radius and that's the thing, I think the most interesting thing about this sort of composition analysis is this mini Neptune super Earth regime where you can go from, like you say, these super dense iron core sort of things um, all the way to something that's extremely fluffy and, and very sort of low mass but large radius. Um, so so that's I think that's the most interesting area that we're studying at the moment in terms of compositions. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, just looking at the atmospheres of any of these Neptune-sized worlds... Um, or mini Neptune-sized worlds, um, we're going to learn so much about that range, that density, that mass range, that atmospheric range. You know, Andrew, you you talked about the the possibility of, you know, you've got something uh, the right size, but that can mean that it has a puffy atmosphere, it can have a really dense atmosphere, um, and that will kind of equal the same thing. Uh, So the only way at the moment that we can work out which one of those scenarios it's going to be for this this ridiculous range where we have no clue what's going on physically is to do these atmospheric uh, characterization studies. So I'm really excited to see what we can learn about these smaller planets in the future. Well, as someone who does atmospheric characterization, I can see why you'd say that, Hannah, but I do totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know that there's going to be any biosignatures for these ones. Have you got any hope for that? Uh, limited. Well, I guess you know maybe up to up to super Earth we could get some some interesting stuff. It all depends on the scale height of the atmosphere, which is something I'll maybe touch on the next exocast. Fair enough. Right. Thank you, Andrew, for that. That was great. Now, Hugh, you ready to give us uh, this month's exoplanet news? I certainly am. Thanks, Anna. Uh, I thought I'd take a little glance at all of the new planets that we've been found over the last month, uh, including but not limited to 100 new Kepler planets, or K2 planets, and 18 new hot Jupiters. Uh, and I'll also be re- revisiting our old friend TRAPPIST-1b, so I think I'll start there. Uh, so back in May, Hannah suggested that we hadn't heard the last from TRAPPIST-1, this interesting system. Uh, and it seems you were right, Hannah. We've had a host of papers about this in the last month. But I wonder if you weren't holding something back there, because you, you're second author on the most impressive new results. Uh, any comment on that? <laughs> uh, I may have been under some kind of embargo on that one, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, no, no scoop for Exocast. Maybe, maybe next time, I guess. <laughs> Um, Maybe if I'm not under threat of embargo. Yeah, of course. Uh, so to elaborate a bit more on that, uh, what the team, including Hannah, did was observe uh, the transits of both planet B and C with the Hubble Space Telescope's Wide Field Camera 3. And they did this to try and detect any hint of an atmosphere. Um, 
And when I say both, I mean both simultaneously. So a double transit, which is, you know, pure Asimovian levels of sci-fi, I think. Um, uh, so they searched for this atmosphere, basically, as, as Hannah explained last month, by looking for changes in the depth of the transits across different wavelengths, where some molecules absorb more light uh, than, than in other regions. Uh, so the TRAPPIST-1 planets are Earth-sized worlds, almost almost exactly the same size as the Earth. And Hubble isn't usually sensitive, even even on a small star, um, to Earth-sized atmospheres. Uh, but we have found some planets with really thick hydrogen envelopes that are also the same sort of mass and size as, as, as the Earth. Um, so if this was the case for either of these two TRAPPIST worlds, then Hubble would have been able to see it. But as it was, Hubble saw no hint of any change of wavelength, and Hannah and co. concluded that there was uh, no hydrogen atmosphere around either planet. And so this is a step, a real step closer to calling them really Earth-like worlds. And and we don't currently know what the atmospheres are like, but but um, but we certainly know that that they're more likely to be Earth-like than sort of mini Neptunes. Um, and another paper this month actually looks into what we might be able to find from these two planets, uh, or from the system and the atmospheres around these planets in the future, uh, and whether we might be able to potentially detect if the atmosphere has been altered by life the same way our atmosphere has. Uh, and and Joe Barstow and, and, and her team uh, basically simulated what the James Webb might see when it looks, or if it looks at TRAPPIST systems, and showed that we could indeed spot Earth-like levels of ozone on all three of those planets, which is pretty amazing. Um, and only a few years away from now. And it, it would, however, require something like 30 to 60 individual transits, which is a lot of time for such a competitive space telescope. And also, in the case of the most potentially habitable world, which is the, the longest period planet D, it's just not feasible because there's not actually enough transits observable from James, James Webb uh, to, to get that to build up that level of signal. And also, despite being a symptom here on Earth of life, Ozone in another atmosphere isn't a perfect sort of biosignature, as we call it, and, and you'll hear, hear more about next episode um, from, from Andrew. But it really goes to show how powerful James Webb could be, and for the right targets, we're actually closer to answering the question of whether life exists elsewhere in the universe than you might have thought. Um, so, Andrew, you're at an astrobiology conference at the moment. Is there any tr- talk of TRAPPIST-1? Uh... Um, yes, it's, uh, it's certainly been mentioned, and the paper's been spoken of in in very high regard um but i think uh this is very much a, a kind of abstract workshop and is ozone a, a good biosignature for that or? um ozone is, is 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 troublesome it can be a biosignature uh, in certain conditions um and it can also be in some cases uh, an anti-biosignature and we have to know a little bit about the activity of the star um it, which the planet is orbiting to figure out um exactly how ozone might be, might be behaving in the atmosphere itself that's very interesting. And I'm going to, I think, repeat Hannah's prediction for the future here. And we certainly haven't heard the last of TRAPPIST-1, especially with K2 observing the system uh, next year. We've got telescopes trained on it all the time. There's so much uh, that's really fascinating about this. Not only the, the size of the star and the temperature of the star itself that we need to learn more about and the impact that that will have, but the planets around the system are really going to teach us about how uh, a system forms what the mass relation is between a star and its disk and and loads of other things okay now on to the roundup of of all the new planets in the last month and i scraped through all of the new papers so we have a sum total of 136 in the last month Um, and these include just briefly 
three microlensing planets, so three giant planets from the Ogle survey, uh, three radial velocity planets, which are temperate Neptunes orbiting nearby stars found by the automated planet finder at the Lick Observatory. There are 18 new hot Jupiters. Um, these include WASPs 92931131114118. Oh, I won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> these include eight WASP planets, uh, my favourite of which is WASP 127, which, as we were hearing from Hannah, Saturn is, is less dense than water. Well, WASP-127 is 10 times less dense than Saturn even. And in fact, the same density as fresh snow. Uh, so that's that's possibly one of the least dense planets in, in the galaxy we know so far. Also going to predict that we're going to learn a little bit about that one too. Oh, Hannah's on another paper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had 11 Hat South planets. So Hat is the Hungarian Automated Telescope Survey. Um, and there were two Celt planets, and all those, the uh, hot Jupiter list. And there were also more than 100 K2 planets uh, detected. So I'll talk a little bit about, about that. So uh, 100 of these were uh, validated by in a single um, sweep by Ian Crossfield and his team. So they started with 197 candidates from the first five campaigns of K2, and used a variety of follow-up imaging, radial velocity, spectra, and also detailed study of the, the transiting light curve, so the dip in light uh, itself, to validate more than 100 of these as bona fide planets. Um, and one of the most interesting of these is the M-Dwarf K222, which actually hosts four rocky planets. Uh, two of these are actually in the optimistic habitable zone uh, of the star. And the team also found four other new multi-planet systems uh, with two planets and dozens of other single-planet systems. Um, and it really goes to show what a revolution K2 has been. So while Kepler's planets were obviously more numerous, K2 has found many more small planets around bright stars, so brighter than 12 or 13th magnitude, than its older sibling. And it's also been looking for planets around end dwarfs as well, So which these like TRAPPIST-1b, could be excellent targets for James Webb. And with the study only looking at the first 30% of K2's lifespan, there's certainly more to come from Kepler's mission. Uh, and also announced from K2 were two systems with a total of seven planets in. These were both found by Andrew Vandenberg at CFA. Uh, one contained two super-Earths with, with radii about 1.6 and 2.9 times that of Earth. And the other system contained two sub-Neptunes, uh, two normal-sized Neptunes and one Jupiter-sized planet. But the important things about these two systems is that they orbit ninth-magnitude stars, making them some of the brightest stars that we know of with small transiting planets. Uh, so these could certainly be follow-up targets for the future as well. And moving past transits and onto the final method uh, of direct imaging, so there was a planet discovered just this month um, in a triple-star system. So Kevin Wagner and... His team found a young, so about 16 million year old gas giant in the HD 131399 triple system. So the planet orbits the largest star in the group, so just a single star every few hundred years, so it's on quite a wide orbit. And that star is then orbited by a pair of M dwarfs that are only about three times further away than the planet. So it's quite an interesting and unusual system. Um, but it is only the second planet that's been found by Sphere and. Uh, with the Sphere being a uh, really high-sensitivity imager on the VLT in Chile. And it was initially hoped that Sphere and GPI, its American equivalent almost, um, 
would find dozens of planets in its first year. But this actually, being the second planet, and having spoken to a few researchers in the field, there's the feeling that these large planets far from their stars that are detectable by direct imaging, by things like Sphere and GPI, they're just not as common as we originally thought. And in fact, there was another study out in the last month by researchers in Grenoble, and they came to a similar conclusion to this. They looked for low-mass stars looking for Jupiter companions, but found that only around 2% had detectable planets. Uh, so we might well have to wait for the next generation of, of ELTs and TMTs uh, to start finding directly imaged planets in large numbers. And that wraps up July's exoplanet news. Fascinating haul of new planets to, to study, which is going to be great. What, what ones would you say that you would want to kind of pick up and follow the most out of the ones that you've just been looking at over the last month? Um, so, so there are three of the planets in uh, the five planet system that Andrew Vandenberg found, and these only transit their star once. So these are, uh, in fact, I was also looking for these these sort of planets. Um, these I think are really cool because we don't we don't quite know when they'll return again. We have to go with different uh, different techniques and try and figure out what the period is and then observe them again. And some of these longer period Jupiters, especially around bright stars, are the sort of objects we just haven't studied much at all. We're very focused on the hot, close-in uh, Jupiters. So so I think some of those planets are, are, well, for me anyway, maybe slightly biased, the most interesting. You're allowed to be biased. I think we all are a little bit towards yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> our, our own uh, kind of subfields. Now it's time to adopt another planet into our exocast family and it's Andrew's choice this week. What have you come up with? Thanks Hannah. So the fourth sibling to add to the Exocast family uh, that I've chosen this month is Kepler-186f um, and this was the first planet with a, a radius uh, similar to the Earth's discovered orbiting in the habitable zone. Um, so I will caveat that with remembering the potential issues I discussed with just having a radius measurement. Um, and it orbits a red dwarf about 560 light years away from the Earth or so. So this was found uh, by the Kepler Space Telescope uh, in 2014 uh, and then was announced uh, in a paper by Elisa Quintana uh, and the rest of the uh, the Kepler team um, based at NASA Ames, with whom I'm grateful to share a corridor. And she's very lovely. Um, I was reminded of this planet actually during um, during a, a recent rewatch of The Martian, which I think is great, um, and I think we should continue investing money to bring Matt Damon back from places. Um, and this was on my recent uh, transatlantic flight um, when I was uh, uh, actually coming here to Seattle for for this meeting. And the reason I was reminded is because NASA's fictional administrator in that film, Teddy, um, has a picture of the artist's conception of this planet up on his wall. If you look very carefully in a single frame or so. Um, and actually, Elisa and Tom Barkley uh, told me that the process of designing that image was actually one of the most difficult parts of the announcement, as the graphic artist and the scientists, of course, have very different standards of accuracy. Um, and just between us and, of course, all the Exocast listeners, they weren't particularly with happy with how it turned out. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's a planet that's kind of already in the cultural zeitgeist for want of a better word um, you know it's made it into films and people often can identify that 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 image especially if you work in the field um, and it's actually even made it into video gaming for example um, so along with five other exoplanets uh, kepler 186f was included in a kind of map pack for a, a strategy game called civilization beyond earth so it's kind of already you know kind of getting uh, getting out there and 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 uh, 
people who maybe aren't familiar with with exoplanet research, you know, might have an opportunity to to think about these kind of worlds around other stars, even if they're just playing it uh, on a computer game. However, uh, this, it's, it's a complex case study. Um, it's one of the first you know, planets like this that we found, of course, and it illustrates some of the issues we might encounter when considering a planet's habitability or its Earth-likeness uh, more generally. Um, so its mass uh, was initially calculated, of course, because we only had the radius. So it was initially calculated using uh, a model of thermal evolution, similar to, to the, the kind of equations that I discussed earlier in this episode. And this suggested that the planet was likely to be rocky uh, and unlikely to have a thick hydrogen-helium atmosphere. Although this, this couldn't be ruled out, of course, for, for reasons that I mentioned, because um, you know, we can have different N-member results for, for the same average density. Um, so it could be a rocky terrestrial planet or a lower density ocean planet with a thick atmosphere. However, because of the tendency of red dwarfs, you know, like the star um, which it's orbiting, to emit in the extreme UV, this would likely have been stripped off because UV likes to likes to strip off um, atmospheres like that. So that kind of excludes that possibility and suggests that maybe it is in fact rocky. However, um, its effective temperature is about minus 85 degrees Celsius, which is similar to Mars in some places. Um, so we have to make assumptions about its atmosphere, and that's always the problem when you're thinking about habitability in Earth-like worlds. Um, and then, of course, compute potential greenhouse forcing from climate models. So it means it could be much warmer than you know, minus 85, and it probably will be. It'll have some sort of atmosphere. Um, but exactly how much, water, uh, how much warmer depends very heavily on the composition of that atmosphere, which we're not really too sure about yet. Um, so I think it's a fascinating study, and I like picking firsts for our our exoplanet family. Um, I think this is uh, one of the, the, the first firsts um, out there and, and a very interesting candidate. Very nice. Thank you for that. I, I do like the, the firsts that, that we have in these. There's such a new field. We can say this was the first one and this is what we're learning and there's so much more to learn. What uh, kind of follow-up, if any, is, is there for these kinds of planets or for 186F itself? So as with a lot of Kepler systems, it's it's extremely faint, so it's 14.6 in uh, V magnitude, which means there's probably not much follow-up you can do, with a, even with a large telescope. But um, I guess when we push towards ELT and things like that, these candidates might start uh, being able to be re-observed. Okay, thanks, Andrew. Well, that's all we have time for this week on ExoCast. Next time, though, Andrew will be describing how biosignatures can help us search for life on planets around other stars. I will be running through how a quirk of Einstein's theory of relativity lets us search for planets in the galactic bulge. And Hannah will take us through all the latest exoplanet news. Don't forget to check out our website for the next episode at exocast.org. Follow us on Twitter at, at exo underscore cast and on Facebook. Uh, just search for exocast. Thank you and see you next time. Exocast.